This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. With the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Sarah Rigby, online assistant at BBC Science Focus magazine. With me in today's episode, I have editor Dan Bennett. Hi. Commissioning editor Jason Goodyear. Hello. And making his debut on the podcast, staff writer Thomas Ling. Hi. It's been a long and strange year, and most of our attention has been focused on the coronavirus. So today, we're going to be talking about this year's most interesting science that has nothing to do with COVID. We'll start off by talking about our favourite scientific developments of the year, and then we'll discuss the books and documentaries that we've loved. So Dan, why don't you start us off with your favourite news of the year? Yeah, so this might not be maybe the most profound scientific moment or, you know, the biggest breakthrough this year, but... I went for this story because I think it captures everything that we sort of love about science and and reporting on science. So back in January, uh, when we were all back in offices, if you can remember those, um, (laughs) scientists had discovered the oldest known material on Earth. uh, And it was uh, essentially a piece of dust uh, that clocked in at 7 billion years old. Wow. And uh, for context, our sun is uh, a youthful 4.6 billion years old by comparison. Um, and so, what what I found fascinating about this is, so this 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 um, this material is what's known as pre-solar grains, uh, and that basically means you know grains that were around before our sun was formed, and it was locked away inside a meteorite that fell to Earth first back in the 60s. Uh, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, and it was called the Murkison meteorite. Um, and it's been sat in Chicago in the Field Museum, and researchers sort of wanted to see effectively what was inside, because uh, when stars die, they, you know, they explode and their material is flung out into space, and these fragments float around until they sort of end up, like, hopefully, <laughs> balling up into a meteorite. And so these grains become effectively locked away in this little piece of space rock and they stay there unchanged for a billion years. So if you're lucky enough and a meteorite falls to Earth and you can check it and it's old enough, you could potentially have on your hands a time capsule of what life might have been like before our solar system formed. 
Uh, and so that's what they thought they could have on their hands here. And so to, to, to find out, they actually took little chunks of the meteorite and ground them up uh, and effectively dissolved them over and over in acid until all they had left was stardust. Um, and, <laughs> and there's another little bit here that I think sums up one of the fun things about scientists is that uh, apparently when they did this, they noted that it smelt like rotten peanut butter. <laughs> uh, I mean, I did this. The t- yeah, and I did this at the time, and you guys pointed out to me. You were like, "Well, what does what on earth does rotten peanut butter smell like?" Because it doesn't go off, right? Um, and I did think about emailing them. I have been thinking about this quite a lot, <laughs> but then I realised it might be a bit weird if this guy's literally found stardust that's older than you know everything around us, and I'm just really hyper focused on this. <laughs> So I, I left it. I, le- I left him alone. Um, but yeah, so so they found this this, this material, and then they age it by uh, effectively measuring how much cosmic radiation it's been exposed to. And by doing that, they they came to their estimate. And you know, all of the little bits that they found were from different uh, di- had different ages. So some were four billion, some were five billion. So it's re- quite remarkable that in amongst there was this little piece that was sort of. Um, seven billion years old and the 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 value of this is that with that piece they can then understand a little bit more about star from star formation in the early universe and um it's sort of lending credence to the idea that actually our solar system came a little bit later on and and there might have been this very active period where lots of stars were forming uh, in our galaxy early on but i think more than that i just i just like the idea that this rock fell in the 60s and then a kind of cosmologist which is typically you know cosmology is typically this ethereal kind of imaginative pursuit but there's this guy in chicago who smashed up some rock smelt it <laughs> and then got oh yeah that's that's some star i've got i've got a little piece of star here um so yeah that was probably my favorite so if it if he knows it smells like peanut butter or rotten peanut butter does that mean he's then breathed in some stardust that's a good point actually <laughs> um yeah presumably to an effect he's he 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 has stardust inside him i mean i suppose you know there is that uh off quote thing that we're all stardust you know we are all <laughs> <laughs> smelling of peanut butter he's probably got more stardust in him than any other sort of person on the planet so he's like the <laughs> oldest person on, on the planet <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he would. I mean, how I don't want to cast any aspersions on this first character, but how tempting would it to be to just, you know, you're doing your little digging and then you get a little piece and you're like, I'm just going to put that in my pocket. <laughs> 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 just walk off and then I've got a piece of stardust. He's made it into a nice brooch. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would love a stardust brooch. That would be, that would be spectacular. Okay, I think we should move on before we libel this guy. So, <laughs> Jason, <laughs> okay. what was, what, Jason, what was your favourite news of the year? So, continuing the uh, the space theme, the uh, thing that got me um, all uh, whipped up into a frenzy was uh, NASA's announcement in September um, that they're going to be launching their Artemis missions uh, starting at the end of next year. So, for those who don't know, the Artemis m- mission is going to be the first crewed missions to go to the moon since 1972 
And it will also contain the first female astronaut to, to land on the moon too. So I thought this was super exciting. Um, it's quite a long-term plan, planned over several years. But it, at the moment, they're just testing out the launch system and the, and the crew module that they're going to be using for it. It's called the, the imaginatively named Space Launch System and then the Orion Q mod, crew module, excuse me. So they're looking at the end of next year, sort of sending those out on the another imaginative name, Artemis One mission. So that's going to go up for 26 days, including um, six days in orbit around the moon, completely uncrewed as a, a sort of, you know, a safety test and everything. So fingers crossed that goes well. Then in summer 2023, next up is Artemis Two. So this will be the first crewed mission to be taken uh, by the Orion and the SLS. So that's super exciting if that goes ahead in, in um, that short, sort of short space of time. And they'll be uh, flying, doing a flyby of the moon and then coming back down to Earth. So if that proves successful, that will be the first uh, crewed mission that's gone out of low Earth orbit since Apollo 17 in 1972. And that's pretty amazing because even I wasn't born then. <laughs> wow so why are they going back to the moon <clears throat> because science really we haven't you know we haven't <laughs> we haven't been there for you know as, as we say so long since the early 70s but on, on a serious note so they're going to it's the first sort of step in establishing um, a permanent lunar moon base and then exploring potentially crewed missions outside the solar system you know for all things go to plan so it's super exciting and super positive uh, news story and what has been a bit of a bit of a stinker of a year. <laughs> and there, there, it's part of this sort of sur- sort of surge of kind of uh, interest again in the moon, isn't it? Where you get you have China, China, and the Changi missions. You have some private enterprises that we've reported on throughout the year, looking at uh, potential moon-based locations. Um, so. D- you know, it's a, it's a massive. I think I think the, the, this is at the centre all of that. Certainly means that more so than ever before. It looks like there'll be there'll be human feet on the moon this decade. Yeah, I mean, optimistically, yeah, we hope so. I mean, they're going to. Um, they're also working on um, the Lunar Gateway, sort of the planned small space station that um, they're hoping to go up there. So, I mean, it could be. Um, fingers crossed. In I don't know within the next next decade, we're regularly seeing astronauts flying up to this lunar gateway and, and even perhaps on you know landing on the moon and doing some science on that so that would be be great do you know how long it's going to take um them to, to get to the moon again like have we got any faster since the 1970s oh i don't know actually yeah that's a good question because they've got these it's like um the the sls is, is an, an enormous launch system so it's you know over 100 meters tall it weighs tens of thousands of kilos um but I'm not in terms of speed. I'm not sure, to be honest, if it would be. I'm not sure how, how much the boosters have moved on. You know, in terms of in terms of propulsion and that sort of thing. I don't know. I wonder if it's like um, transatlantic flight, whereby actually it's about efficiency more than speed these days. And you know, maybe 20 years ago it was like six hours to get to, to well USA be. or seven hours, and actually now it's nine, ten, eleven. Um, so it could be going. They could. They could be going for, for you know, putting less fuel on board to make everything lighter and get there more efficiently. 
there is a bit of um, sort of one-upmanship between the NASA SLS system and the SpaceX Starship, which is, I suppose, its equivalent, which is, I don't know if this is by uh, by design or an accident, but it's slightly taller. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the Starship is actually fully reusable, whereas the, the NASA one doesn't recover its boosters. So that's sort of a slightly... I don't wouldn't say controversial, but that's a that's a point of difference between the two that certain people like to point out. Let's just leave it there. <laughs> okay, thank you very much, Jason. Uh, so, Tom, what did you like in science news this year? Oh, I'm really excited to talk about this. Um, so, <laughs> I think the one event I thought was amazingly significant this year uh, was the Elon Musk Pig News Conference. That might kind of sound like a kind of weird psychedelic dream, but I'll, I'll explain. <laughs> So um, all year, or earlier in the year, Elon Musk, um, who most people know as the CEO of SpaceX, he sort of teased an unveiling of a new technology from Neuralink. That's another one of his companies. Um, and I think it's about February he started saying that Neuralink is going to demonstrate a working version of their brain-machine interface chip. So that's basically an implant that could show a person's brain neurons firing in real time. So every time the person moves, you could sort of see... Uh, their brain patterns in that respect. Um, so everyone was kind of expecting Elon Musk to sort of walk out maybe with like a brain chip in his own head. Um, but instead, he, he trotted out uh, Gertrude the pig um, <laughs> in, in a news conference that had all the straw on the floor, um, but with all these monitors in the background. And then it got like quite black mirror quite quickly, but not, not in the way you're sort of thinking. <laughs> Um, so Musk revealed that, that Gertie had like a sort of coin-sized chip in his head um, and it's just below her skull and it contained, I think it was 3,000 electrodes sort of attached to threads thinner than a human hair that can monitor a thousand brain neurons at once. And um, although it took Gertie a bit to get going, I think she was a bit camera shy, she eventually started sort of sniffing around at the straw and eating it. And as she did this, all the um, the chip that was connected to neurons um, that control the sort of smell and sort of snout muscles started to light up. And you can see it in um, the screen behind her. So, yeah, it was really, really, really cool to see. But I guess the big question is what was the kind of point of it? I guess it's quite cool to see a sort of pig snuffing around. But, you know, where is it going to lead? Well... <laughs> Neuralink say they're developing devices like this for people who are paralysed or suffered from neurological conditions um, to essentially control phones and computers with their minds. Um, So you wouldn't need to sort of um, unlock your phone or, you know, go on Facebook. You could do it all in your head, which would be really cool. Um, In fact, Elon Elon Musk sort of claimed that these chips might be able to cure dementia uh, as well as doing things like summoning a non-branded electric car with your brain. Um, so, <laughs> now, a lot of neuroscientists are sceptical about these claims, saying it's a long way off. But according to Musk, it's the first step in sort of creating this human, superhuman intelligence, as he describes it, uh, something which he believes will be essential in guarding humans um, from future AI if it goes wrong. If it goes rogue, um, so. Well, well, sort of demonic AI finishes all off. I guess we have to find out in twenty twenty one. Something Musk's worried about this this sort of AI superpower turning evil and, and going rogue against us. And yeah, I've heard yeah. him talk about that before. Actually, so they, he's um, he's been quite vocal in saying that uh, 
we need to be very careful with AI. We need to to make sure that we've got AI that like understands human goals, I think. I think one analogy he's brought up before is if you told an AI to build paperclips, oh, yeah. if you just left that instruction, that they will have basically harvest humans in order to make more paperclips in the end. <laughs> Yeah. So hopefully then, if, if all goes to plan, Neuralink will save our bacon. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how Musk has the time for all this. I mean, he's got SpaceX, electric cars, Neuralink. He's got his snout in a lot of troughs, hasn't he? <laughs> You've got a lot of these lined up, Jason. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, seriously, though, it is. He's not alone, is he? He it's him, James Lovelock. You know, mostly very prominent scientists who have no real. Uh, they don't work in AI. <laughs> it's probably <laughs> what unites them. Are sort of terrified and think that we need some kind of, you know, human machine interface in order to be able to. I don't know what, do war, I suppose, with the robots uh, in the future. And then if you, when you talk to AI researchers, um, I mean, I suppose they're a bit biased, but they're sort of, you know, they're just, they're, this is completely unfounded. But I, th- I think it does embody this idea that AI is sort of barreling along farther, faster than we are keeping track of it. I mean, just look at how we, we've, you know, created regulations around data been very slow to kind of keep up with the reality of it but it's interesting because as a psychologist I'm totally fascinated by it and um, especially what you might be able to learn when you're able to you know see brain activity neuron by neuron as you're doing tasks um, and what that um, will mean for how we understand the brain. Yeah I think um, Musk described it as a, as a fit bit of the mind really so um, not only will other people sort of be aware of how they're kind of feeling, um, you yourself might have a better understanding of your own emotions, which would be really cool, but terrifying. Okay, thank you very much, Tom. Um, so now I'm going to tell you about uh, a new story that I found amazing from this year. Um, I, like Dan and Jason, am a fan of space. Um, <laughs> it was quite space heavy, this. Um, I love exoplanets. And there was a new story this year about the coolest exoplanet where it rains molten iron. So this is a planet called WASP-76b. And it is tidily locked uh, to its star, like our moon is to us. So it always shows the same face to its star. And what this means is that it has one side that is really, really hot. On, on the day side, it reaches 2,400 degrees Celsius. And the night side is much, much cooler. It's still quite hot. It's still around 1,500 degrees Celsius. But, you know, that's a huge difference between the two of them. Um, and so when, when it was studied by um, the Very Large Telescope earlier this year, they found this huge temperature difference. And they also found something weird, which was that uh, on the day side, um, there was a huge abundance of iron vapour. So now iron is a metal with a really high melting point. So that's surprising on its own that, you know, you can you can vaporise iron and have it in the atmosphere. But then they also found that they didn't find such a high concentration of iron on the night side. So they came to the conclusion then that what must be happening is that it gets so hot on the day side that this iron 
evaporates from the surface of the planet. And then the huge temperature difference drives these really strong winds round from the day side to the night side of the planet. And that carries this iron around. And then when it gets to the night side, it's too cool for this iron to stay as a vapour. So it then cools and condenses and then rains down onto the night side of the planet. Um, and that in itself is just really cool. But I also just thought it was amazing that we can now study the weather on other planets. How great is that? So this other planet is 390 light years away from Earth. And we know what the weather is like there. And I just think that is an amazing advancement in science. I think... Do you think they should add like? A, do you think they should add a segment on the news, maybe for like other planets, the weather there? <laughs> that would be cool. I don't think we quite have enough detail yet to forecast it. Um, we can only like tell what elements are in the atmosphere. But still, if we could, that would be very exciting. This this does remind me of a conversation I had with um our uh our content director who uh, when we were sort of pitching a story about exoplanets. Uh, I was telling him about, I think it was another of these exoplanets that they hypothesised could be sort of heavily covered in diamonds. And his response was, no, it's not. <laughs> I was like, what, what do you mean? He was like, it's, it's too far away. How do we know? How do we know? <laughs> so that brings me to my question. So how do, so how do, they, how do they see this? How do they um, get a sense of the materials uh, and temperatures that are kind of present on a on a planet like this okay so essentially um do you know that image of when when you put sunlight through a prism and it splits into the colors of the rainbow um it's based on that concept so if we have sunlight um we can split it into all of its different wavelengths and now if that sunlight is when it travels through a material like a gas or something that gas will absorb certain wavelengths of light so if we then look at the way, if we then split the sunlight that come, that reaches us, um, we'll see that there are some wavelengths missing. And from that, we can figure out what elements it has traveled through, what element, um, because each element has a specific, uh, a specific sort of signature of wavelengths that it will absorb, a bit like a barcode, because um, it's sort of stripy like a barcode. Um, so we can look at the light from the star that WASP-76b orbits as it travels through the atmosphere of WASP-76b and then reaches Earth. And we can so we can see what elements are present in the atmosphere of that planet based on what wavelengths of light it has absorbed. I think that's amazing. Yeah, easy. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't stop thinking, though, if you were to visit that planet, what sort of umbrella would you need? <laughs> uh... A steel umbrella would that work? A bulletproof Kevlar or something? Yeah, I think it'd be hairy, wouldn't it, going to the shops? (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know of any. I can't think of a material that could survive that. (laughs) It's hot enough to evaporate iron. Yeah, and and I mean it's it's a good point because it's I suppose we the reasons we might wonder why scientists are doing this kind of stuff and it's not so much about going there or ever. Understand, but it, it, it as as we as we see these exoplanets, we discover more and more that the the rules that we had about planet formation um, have to be kind of changed and re- revised all the time because we find these just bizarre planets that kind of don't meet our expectations at all. And 
you know, like you say, you get these these uh, the light back from the star, and you're like, well, what on earth could be causing this data? And and yeah, and then you have to figure it out. Okay, right. Uh, now let's talk about the books and documentaries that we have enjoyed this year. So we've got the Christmas period coming up. We should all have a little bit of time off work. So uh, that means you've got a bit of time to read some books, watch some documentaries, something like that. And there's loads of great science stuff that's been out this year. So, Dan, what have you enjoyed this year? Um, so in terms of a non-fiction book, I really enjoyed uh, Tim Spector's uh Tim Fetz's latest book, uh, Spoonfed. Um, but I have I have bored everyone about that before. Um but if you if you if you want a good primer on uh you know what kind of food you should be eating to stay healthy and you want something that's gonna make you feel positive and not kind of weighed down by all the different research, um I think that's a, a brilliant guide to you know nutrition and diet science. Um but more I kind of briefly <laughs> Uh, so so this year I for the first time I read Dune, um, which I think sci-fi lovers would probably gasp at that idea. Um, but you know the film's coming out, and I wanted to understand what the you know because there's such a cult following and, and people love it. Um, and obviously for the magazine, I wanted to see what what we ought to do around it. And um, it's funny because I. <laughs> I really enjoyed the book when I read it. Read it. It's a very, uh, it's sort of very fast-paced uh, work, and it's almost. It's obviously none of us have gone on holiday this year, but it, it did seem like a great holiday read. Uh, and I thought it's all of. I mean, I think it's fair to say if anyone's seen the films, it's a little bit silly. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, the main character is called Paul, uh, which didn't strike me as a very science fiction name. Uh, and they're all obsessed with spice, um, which is a... An 80s deodorant. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it may as well. It, it, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a sort of almost magical material that seems to do everything, um, including give you sort of almost, you know, superpower, superpowers, uh, the ability to sort of predict things and even uh, longer life. Um but the reason the reason I've sort of thought about it and stuck with me is is it's when it's written. It's um, I should have, should have double checked this, but it's it, it predates you know most of the the science fiction um, that we kind of is, is is in popular culture right now. And I know this isn't really science fiction, but even Star Wars, you know, a lot of the ideas and kind of world building that is in Dune, you can see you can you can draw a correct uh, you know a line to Star Wars, which, you know, is is coming back in a big way at the moment in that you've got, you know, Paul or Luke, uh, who's a, kind of a bit of a bland character and he's going to save the universe. But then you look around, you know, Dune's all about um, terraforming. So terraforming this desert planet and, um, you know, making it more habitable. And the characters that arrive there, it's sort of, it's funny because it's it's all corporations, but they've fallen back into sort of hierarchical uh things that look like monarchs and all of that and indeed one of the characters is a duke um so it's all it's all a bit silly but i i can't admire can't but help but admire the kind of science fiction world building that um that was that was in the book and uh yeah i, I think i think definitely i would rec i think it's probably going to be 
a very hard film to make. So I'm, I'm not sure how the film's going to go, but I definitely recommend the book. Okay. Thank you, Dan. Uh, Jason, what do you recommend? Uh, so one book that I read um, this year, it's actually a reprint. It's, it was um, a few years ago it was first um, published, but now it's been reprinted and, and updated with, with the latest science and new case studies and things. And it's um, David Nutt's Drugs Without the Hot Air, so most people will be familiar with David Nutt as the he was the the former what they call drug czar or drugs advisor for the government. He's been this sort of kind of unfairly regarded as kind of a maverick figure, which he isn't at all. You know, he's, he's not like some sort of weirdo psychonaut that's saying everybody should take illegal drugs, and it's it's, it's not <laughs> like that at all. So if you, if you read the book, what what you get is a real clear-headed evidence-based analysis of all things to do with drugs so it can be um his opinions on how he thinks the lawmaking policy surrounding drugs is being clouded with um various emotional political judgments and um it's just a very like clear as somebody who studied science it's a very clear application of the scientific method of in in its in a very pure way and he expresses his ideas and his thoughts very clearly. So it's it's a really great read. Um, and he covers all sorts of things, like the history of drug regulation, um, where he thinks it's gone wrong, uh, right up to his current work that he's doing now on... This is like one point I really found ironic about the about the book and the, the policy surrounding uh, legal and illegal drugs. It's, there's now work going on using drugs... Well, so... This, this uh, researcher named Ben Sesser in the University of Bristol, he's been treating alcoholics um, with in a recovery program using MDMA, which is the, the the chemical component of what people on the street call ecstasy. And he's met he's been met with great success. And there's, there's also something stopping people smoking tobacco using illegal drugs. So that sort of sums up. Um, for me anyway, a lot of what David's work has been on noticing how backward that the uh, the regulations surrounding this are, the fact that we're now finding success in using currently illegal drugs to treat addictions to current legal ones. Did he go into uh, about how um, it seems almost crazy that alcohol is legal um, and these other drugs aren't? Yeah, he does say, like... Um, his own view on alcohol as well. He's he says he does drink it occasionally, but he's um, it's basically it's a quirk of history, isn't it? And um, it's like our drug of choice, thanks to its historical evolution, um, and it's received certain preferential treatments due to that fact. But yeah, he's, so in his in his risk assessment, alcohol's more dangerous than than a lot of the the current at least class B drugs. And yeah, mm, I think I, I spoke to him earlier in the year when the, when his book um, this, this this edition was published, and and I think it, it's it, it's particularly interesting when it comes to alcohol because he does you know clearly the harm caused by alcohol far outweighs all of these, but there's a a point that he kind of. Uh, discovered when he got involved in politics in that, you know, you, the trouble is when, when these things are put into law uh, and they become political, um, not only is it 
you know, there's obviously the, the court of public opinion, but you you have a you have a struggle to essentially legalize something because effectively you have populations of people in jail because of this thing that you're legalizing or illegalizing. Um, so suddenly, if you were to make alcohol illegal or if you were to make another substance illegal, you're making a big uh, statement about those people that you've imprisoned. So that's where the kind of, I think, the policy side of this thing, you know, it, it was never something that was ultimately for him because, as he would sort of say, you know, I'm here to do the research and understand, I, you know, give you the information about the risk, but I'll leave the politics to everyone else. Thank you very much, Jason. Uh, Tom, what would you recommend from this year? Uh, well, I'm going to talk about a TV show uh, instead of a, uh, a book. Um, and as much as I really want to keep on talking about Tiger King, which apparently was still in 2020, so it's a very long time ago, <laughs> um, I'm instead going to talk about another Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma. So it's, it's a docu-film. Uh, it's only about 90 minutes, so it can be done in one sitting. But with that said, it's it's not an easy watch at all. Um, as you can probably guess from the title, it delves into sort of social media and specifically how platforms such as Facebook are designed to be addictive and how it sort of impacts our overall health. Um, and the film kind of argues that in order to keep sort of grabbing our attention, uh, these apps will show you more eye-catching content that inherently lead to um, quite sort of damaging rows, whether it's conspiracy theory videos or sort of flat earther kind of stuff. But even if you don't end up on a crazy Pizzagate or QAnon kind of group and only go on social media to look at political news or opinions, there's the argument that you'll be shown things that are gradually more extreme. So, I mean, this is nothing particularly new, um, but the film presents quite compelling studies that, say, in the US, for instance, uh, political, political opinions have become much more polarised since these algorithms have been used in a big way. Uh, This is only correlation, not causation, but it's still really interesting. Um, I think particularly in this film because of who's presenting it. So this film contains many of the people who actually built these algorithms. Um, It features people like uh, Justin Rosenstein, who's the man who invented the like button. Um, and it's quite interesting how a lot of these people, they don't let their children use smartphones because they've, they've seen how addictive these social media apps are on there. Um, and basically, all of this was enough for me to take Facebook off my own phone. Um, and what was really interesting was I left Facebook for a few days and then I came back on like the desktop version. And there were so many notifications um, that weren't really that relevant to me. So it's like this old school friend did blah, blah, blah. Like the, the guy you stalked on Facebook six months ago has a new partner. Um, it felt like it was really trying to, it was pulling out all the stops to try and get me sucked in, which is exactly what this sort of uh, documentary said might happen. Um, and if you want to face that kind of dread, well, the social dilemma is streaming now. <laughs> I, one thing I, I found quite interesting about Facebook was that I had it for quite a long time. And eventually I realized that it was so good at this, at this drawing you in and keeping you addicted, that it took me ages to notice that I wasn't actually enjoying using it at all. It was just becoming such a habit. And, you know, that they, they were pushing more and more adverts to me and showing me less and less of the content I actually wanted to see, which was, you know, things that my friends were doing. Um, but, you know, it's it 
eventually I realized that I wasn't actually getting what I wanted from it at all. And then once I finally managed to to stop using it, once I managed to break free of the Facebook addiction, I didn't miss it at all. Yeah, I, I don't really miss it now too much, apart from when I do go on the desktop version every like month and then instantly get sucked in. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, what I found really, really interesting about this film and when I talk about the algorithms is the data they collect. Obviously, I, I knew that Facebook probably has quite a lot of, of data, personal data, but they capture data on, by the microsecond of how long you look at every post. Um, and then using that, they can, you know, generate content that you're more likely to spend um, time on. So, yeah, it, it's, quite, it's quite scary. Are you, are you guys, have you guys del- deleted your profiles or are your profiles still there? I've deleted mine, yeah. Oh, I wouldn't go that far. I'm, I'm not crazy. Because <laughs> they, do, they do kind of create um, sort of, you know, your, your, your shadow is, is sort of still there in the system. So I wonder, it's, it's increasingly hard to get rid of and there's still probably a digital Sarah in the Facebook database. Yeah, I mean, I have a WhatsApp account, so they still have my details. They still know about me. They still know what you like. Yeah, they still know what I talk about. The cookies are still following you around the web, so they're probably still able to tell you exactly what you want before you know you want it. This sounds like a great film, like real-life Sarah with shadow Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I wonder. I wonder how Shadow Sara is different to Real Sara. Well, what, what did Real Sara? Um, what what book or or film did uh, Real Sara <laughs> like this year? Okay, well, Real Sara um, liked a documentary on Netflix that only came out at the start of December, and it's called Alien Worlds. Oh and yeah, it is this really interesting. Sort of, it's like a sci-fi nature documentary. So it is. Uh, the idea of it is. A nature documentary but set on a different planet so the idea is that all life on earth follows the same basic laws all species need to eat or find energy somehow they all need to reproduce and they all need to avoid being eaten themselves so why would those laws be any different anywhere else in the universe it's got to be the same driving factors behind all species all life everywhere um and so what, what this documentary does is that it takes a, um, an exoplanet and, and the conditions on the exoplanet and asks, how would life survive and thrive here? What sort of life would, would survive here? And it draws inspiration from real species on Earth. So one example is that there's a planet like WASP-76b that I was talking about earlier. It's tidally locked, so it's got one really hot face and one really cold face. And the species that they that they imagine is, they call it a pentapod. It's a little cat-sized creature with five legs. Um, and it's not a specialist species. It's not one that is specialised to its environment. It's a generalist. It is one that can adapt to whatever environment it finds itself in. And so what the documentary does is that it tells you a bit about the species, and then it will flip back to Earth and it'll show you a species on Earth that does the same thing. And it, and it explains why this is, you know, explains the science behind it. There's so much science in this in this program and why that science um, is, is a good adaptation for the species. So, for example, um, there's a, the species it compares the pentapods to, or one of the species it compares the pentapods to, 
is leafcutter ants. So like many colonies of ants, uh, each individual can fill one of a number of roles. Um, it can be a soldier, it can be a forager, it can be a worker. And they're all the same species. They have all the same genes. But what role it gets placed into depends on its environment and you know what roles are needed. And what role it, uh, it uh, adopts then defines how its body develops. They can be much, much bigger um, or much, much smaller than each other, depending on what role they play. Um, and the idea is that pentapods on this fictional planet could do a similar sort of thing, is that they have a, all of them have the same set of DNA, but depending on the environment that they're born into, they will develop a vastly different body to adapt to their environment. And it's a very interesting series, and I highly recommend it. But one thing I would say is probably don't watch it whilst you're eating your dinner, because there are a few clips of these species mating, and it is kind of gross. Who <laughs> had to animate that? Yeah. <laughs> so, Jim, okay, it's got 18 legs, and they entangle in the sea. <laughs> Paint me a picture. Go. It's um, going to be mountain rain coming down. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's three suns they're all they're all setting at the same time but it's beautiful <laughs> <laughs> um, but um <laughs> but i mean it's not that's not really that dissimilar in a way i mean it's a logical extension of what you know biologists or astrobiologists do to hunt for alien life they 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 they, they, they look around on earth and, and look at things that have occupied niches um in in the extreme places and they they look for signs of those things elsewhere, right? Yeah, absolutely. So if you do want to learn any more on this topic, we have um, an article on it in the December issue of BBC Science Focus magazine. Astrobiologist Dr. Eric Kirschenbaum has written about that for us. And so you can either pick up a, a copy of the December issue or you can go to sciencefocus.com and search for what might aliens look like. Or, of course, you can just watch Alien Worlds on Netflix. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Science Focus podcast. The December issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. It's a special issue all about the search for extraterrestrial life. In it, we talk to a scientist who is beaming messages into space for intelligent alien species to hear. We explore the best places in our solar system to look for life, and we discuss why we want to believe in aliens. And as always, there's much more inside. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.